0: Glad to see you guys this morning. If you would, go ahead and take your copy of God's Word and turn to Nehemiah chapter 13. That's where we're going to be. We're wrapping up 12 weeks in Nehemiah today in chapter 13. And so if you'll go ahead and get there, especially want to welcome you today if you're our guest. If everyone's been friendly around you, we're super grateful. If they haven't, just consider them a guest as well. They probably don't know that the Bellwether people are really friendly people. That's who we are. And so we're glad that you're here. If you would. If you're online and tuning in today for the first time, you can uh, send us a message just saying, hey, I'm here. Here's who I am. If you're here for the first time, there's a card in the seat back in front of you that looks like this. You can put your name and email address on that, and we will contact you in a respectful way. A couple of things before we get to Nehemiah chapter uh, 13, just in a couple of weeks is Easter. And it is an extraordinary opportunity for us as followers of Jesus to invite people to come to church. Just culturally in the South, people come to church on Easter. And so we want and would love for them to join us on Easter as we celebrate the reality that Jesus Christ not only died in our place for our sins, but he rose again. And because of that, we have life and we have hope and it, it transforms everything. And so there are invite cards that look like this on your way out, okay? We'd love for you to pick up as many people as you can imagine inviting, And then hand them to them and say, I'd like to personally invite you to join us. For celebrating Jesus Christ, what he's done on the cross, and who he is alive today because of his resurrection. And so we have a Good Friday service on April the 2nd at 6.30pm that's going to be in this room, in this space. We're hoping to exalt the reality that Jesus Christ suffered so that we would not have to. That he took the punishment that we righteously deserve on himself so that we might receive the mercy that we do not deserve in gladness and with joy. And so we're going to celebrate that reality on Friday and then Easter Sunday morning. We have two services at at 9 and 10.30. And if you're planning to come, we'd love for you, even if you're a regular here, to RSVP so that we can divvy out the spaces in in this room. And so we're hoping that this room will be packed two times, not just once, but two times on Easter Sunday. And uh, it's going to take everyone inviting their neighbors and inviting people to come and join us. We want to celebrate the reality of Jesus Christ. And so invite everyone that you can think of. Now. If you haven't been here for the previous 11 weeks, we've been plowing through the text of Nehemiah, okay, for a very long time now. And so if you're here, you just showed up for the very last episode in the season of us looking at the story of God through the book of Nehemiah. And it is a story of God's restoration power that he loves to take broken people and broken places and broken things and to pour out his grace in those places so that he might demonstrate his power to his magnificent mercy. In, in so many ways, we've seen that story unfolding, and specifically through a servant of his named Nehemiah, who comes and attempts to partner with God in this work of restoration to get people, God's people, back to their place, to restore the city where they're supposed to live, to restore their worship, to restore their culture, so that in all those places that these people would reflect The nature and glory of who God is in the way that He intended. So, today we're going to see in this final chapter two things, two realities our tendency to drift away from the the design that God has for us and our need for godly spiritual leadership. And so, that's what we're going to see. That's the point of this specific passage. And we're going to start in verse four in just a moment. And the work of restoration here's what I want you to know before we plow through this text the work of God's restoration is never going to be complete this side of heaven. There's always going to be battle lines that are moving because of ground that we've gained and ground that we've lost. And we're always going to need confrontation and correction and godly people who will compassionately guard our joy, our future joy, that we would absolutely forfeit if it was left up to us. We need people like that. We need God's work like that in our lives. So God's people haven't always been known as the most faithful people. That's what you're gonna see in this passage. They have been known as the ones who are prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love and spiritual leaders as we're going to see in Nehemiah have to make a regular practice of confrontation and correction in order to prevent and to guard the joy that would be lost if we're not walking with Jesus. And so before we see look in this scripture today, I want you to know that just a few chapters ago in chapter 10, God's people have renewed their covenant to the Lord. And in that renewal, They promised God not only to obey God's law, but they specifically said three things, okay? We're no longer going to intermarry with the people who had no faith in God. Their homes had ceased to be a place of worship, and they're saying, hey, we can no longer exist that way. And so they committed to covenant together and say, okay, no longer will our marriages not represent what God designed for them. Because of these marriages, God's people had found themselves involved in power plays with the nations around them because they had intermarried with the people around them, okay? Okay. And so in this covenant renewal, they said, look, we're not going to do that any longer. We're only going to marry people who believe in the same God as us. And then the second thing that they did was they recommitted themselves to the Sabbath just back in chapter 10. They're saying, hey, look, we have forsaken the Sabbath. Now, maybe you would see that as just, hey, they didn't rest on the Sabbath. That is what it was literally. But ultimately, they were saying, we do not trust that God will provide for us. And so we have to take our work into our own hands. And we've got to do everything we can do in order to make provision for ourselves. In other words, we do not trust that God is good enough to take care of our needs. So we're going to have to take everything into our own hands. That's what they just committed to just two chapters ago. And then the last thing they committed to was to give an offering to the work of God through the temple, that they would take care of the financial needs, the physical needs of the people who worked in the temple. Now, if you're anything like me, you're looking at it saying, okay, they just committed to this just in chapter 10. So how can they get to the place they're getting to in chapter 13? And as unbelievable as it is, what we're about to read, I think that most of us would find it very familiar, unfortunately. So let's just read starting in chapter 13 verse 4. Now before this, Eliashib the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah. Again, this is intermarriage. Tobiah is an enemy to God's work. He's related to him, verse 5. Prepared for Tobiah, that's God's enemy. A large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time I asked leave of the king. And came to Jerusalem, and then I discovered the evil that Eliasheb had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Can you guys picture this? Okay. He throws out all the furniture, verse 9. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Verse 10, I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses, and I appointed the treasurers over the storehouses, Shalomiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zakur, son of Methaniah. For they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Verse 14 Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on what day, on the Sabbath, and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. The Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself, exclamation point. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates and that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside of Jerusalem once or twice. In other words, they found a way to keep on doing what they were doing. They just camped outside the city so they keep on selling things they weren't supposed to sell on the day that God, they weren't supposed to sell it. Verse 21. But I warned them and said to all of them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O oh my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Verse 23. Y'all sticking with me? Stick with me. Verse 23. In those days, I also saw the Jews who had married women of Eshdod, Amnon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him even even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, Jehoiada the son of Eliashib, high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Hornite. Here, just another side note. Sanballat is the great enemy to God's work, who was partners with Tobiah, who was throwing taunts and threats towards God's people as they did God's work. And how do they show up in the story again? Intermarriage. So now they're related to God's people who are trying to accomplish God's work. Twenty-nine. I'm sorry verse 29 remember them oh my god because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites verse 30 thus I cleansed them from everything foreign and I established the duties of the priest and the Levites each in his work and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits remember me oh my god for good this is the word of the lord let's pray together Father, we thank you that you would give us your word that's sufficient, it's authoritative, it is without error. And we come before it today and ask you to once again speak to us in the same way that Nehemiah spoke to these people. In confrontation and correction, I pray that you would come and by the Holy Spirit, you would work powerfully to correct any way that we've drifted away from you and then to comfort us once again by the the power of the gospel proclaimed today. I pray that it would correct and confront And that it would be our comfort today and our joy that you would restore the joy of our salvation that you've richly provided to us by your mercy and through Christ. It's in Jesus' name I pray this. Amen. Now, several weeks ago, as I already mentioned, that we covered a section in chapter 10 where they walked through what they were going to do for God. They were saying, once again, we promised God to keep your law. And these three specific areas that they promised, now we watch watched the reversal of all three of them. The Sabbath, the intermarriage, taking care of the priest. And this reads almost like a, chapter 10 in Rewind. Okay, if you could push rewind on what unfolded in chapter 10 where they said, look, we're going to take care of the priests. We're not going to marry these people that are foreigners because they do not worship you, God. And we're going to do all of these things according to your law. This looks like chapter 10 And rewind. They're doing the opposite of what God had commanded of them. And if you haven't been with us since the beginning of Nehemiah, there's people around Nehemiah who've been resistant to God's work from the beginning. They've been against what God was accomplishing and they threw uh, taunts at him. They said, look, if you build this wall, you don't have the resources to do this. You don't have the people to do this. If a fox climbs up on that wall, it's going to fall apart. And those people who are throwing insults, taunts, and and, uh, threats towards God's people and towards Nehemiah, now they show back up again. Why? Because of this first sin that they had done because of intermarriage. And what happens? Nehemiah's natural enemy and the enemy to God's work and to to God's restoration in this group of people is now occupying space in God's place in the temple. Now, can you imagine, can you imagine the enemy of God's work occupying a room with furniture? I don't know if it was an office or a dwelling, but somehow there was furniture in this space that belonged to God. And in this space that belonged to God, now you have his enemies taking up space. And the first thing that I want to point out in this passage and to us is this tendency towards spiritual drift. Four things in this spiritual drift that he confronts. They are entertaining God's enemies. They forsake God's work. They trust themselves to provide. And they forsake the the altar of their homes um, to the enemy. So first thing, they entertain enemies. Eliashab was literally entertaining the enemy of God's work and Nehemiah returns. He is very angry. He takes the furniture. He throws it out on the street. This is just like a scene out of some Jerry Springer episode. He's throwing things out on the street saying, this isn't right. It's not, it doesn't belong here. This is not how God intended it. And he's very angry about it. And in his anger, he throws out all the furniture. This is, however, as, as uh, <laughs> outrageous as this is, In some ways, maybe you will feel like this is very familiar to you. Here's what I want to suggest, that there's ways that the most outrageous things for God and his people can somehow become familiar for us as well. There's spaces in our lives that should be occupied by God and his rule and his lordship where we welcome in his enemies. It makes you wonder, what in the world were they thinking? What happened here? How did they get to this point? If you take your hand off the wheel for a moment, you're going to see, once again, what we've seen throughout all of Nehemiah, that as soon as you take your hand off the wheel, it goes towards the ditch. Our lives are like a car out of alignment. It's always going to go towards the ditch as soon as you stop driving. The wicked is taking up space in places that had been dedicated to God's service and using it to harbor rebellion towards God and his work. There's ways in which you have space in your lives, okay? Your calendar, your budget, your time, your energy, all are gifts to you to be stewarded. And God has declared himself Lord over all of those spaces. Your home is God's home. Your calendar is God's calendar. Your budget is God's ca- budget. Your life, God has designed with the purpose To worship him in the same way that this is a temple, the Holy the New Testament would describe our lives as a temple for the Holy Spirit. And in every way, God wants to occupy that space with his power and his presence and his life. And before you get to thinking that maybe you need to create space for God in your life, here's what I want you to know. So many times I remember as a kid people saying, You need to make space for God as if God was something that somehow could fit into my calendar. He could fit somehow into the order of my life instead of seeing my life as fitting into the design and and pleasures of God in the world. We cannot flip it around. God is not gonna be a slave to you. We become his obedient servants when he claims us as his own. So we don't find space for God to fit in our lives. He has invited us to be part of his story in the world. And he's saying, I'm going to fit you into the story that I'm telling of restoration of my power and my grace and my mercy in the world. And I want you to be part of demonstrating my story in the world. And the way that he claims your life for himself means that there's going to be spaces that, that he plans to occupy in your world because he's invited you to be part of his story. And spiritual drift looks first like letting room, uh, letting there be room for his enemies. The second thing that it looked like was worshiping. They forsook God's, they forsake God's work here. Their portions had not been given to those working in worship. They had just promised to give a tenth in chapter 10. They said, we're going to give a tithe of everything that we own and all that we possess in order to to fulfill God's work in the temple. They wanted to see God's worship happening. And so he confronts them for this. In verse 11, he says, why is God's work forsaken? What was the conclusion of their covenant renewal? They said, we will not forsake the place, the worship of God. We're not going to forsake what he's ordained. And at this moment, Nehemiah is looking at them and saying, why have you forsaken the thing that you renewed your promise to? Why? Well, you guys know why. You guys know the answer to this. This is is one of those rhetorical questions that you don't have to ponder why they've forsaken this work. Why it's forsaken? Why did the people left the work of worship? Because it cost them something. They had to give up something in order to see God's work fulfilled in this place and time. And that sacrifice became something that felt a little too costly for them. So they said, we know we can't do that. So Nehemiah sets up an order and organization around the taking up of the offering. He says, look, we need some officials. They're going to stand here. They're going to take up the offering. They were reliable men and they were going to redistribute it to the people that are working in God's temple. And here he steps not only into confrontation, but into correction. He doesn't just see their spiritual drift and say, this is wrong. He says, no, this is what's going to be right. This is how we right the wrong that's happened. He steps into it. Spiritual drift, then it, it covers this area of their life where they work. What I talked about about Sabbath, just go back and listen to that because I don't want to replay everything. But ultimately what they were saying when they forsook the Sabbath was that they did not trust that God would provide for them. Throughout the history of God's people, when he set up the Sabbath, it was for their good. It was for their rest. It was for their delight. And because they were given this gift of rest and delight, every sixth day they had to trust that God would provide enough for the seventh. So in every opportunity they had to work on that seventh day, they were saying, God, we do not trust that you're good enough. We need to take this into our own hands. We need to make provision for ourselves. So they harvested food. They treaded the wine press. They traded with the outsiders just as they had promised not to do. And then verse 17, once again, he confronts them. Verse 18, he says, look, I know how this is going to end for you. I, we've already seen the end of this story. In fact, the reason that this calamity has come us in the first place is because we did the things that you're doing now. Isn't it a good grace when people can see the conclusion of our story and they say, you do not want to go down that path. I know what that path leads to. And that is God's good grace to this group of people through Nehemiah. He's looking at them and saying, you're doing exactly what your fathers did that led you to exile. Do you want to be slaves again? Do you want to be ruined again? No, he's pleading with them as a guardian of their joy. He's saying, look, you've experienced a great amount of joy since returning to this place. Why would you give that up? And then he gives them this warning where he reminds them of Solomon. Look, Solomon was an incredible man, but he drifted away in one area in marriage. And the next area of spiritual drift was in the home. They forsook the altar of the home. The last thing that Nehemiah confronts in this role of spiritual leadership is their marriages. He's saying, once again if you're going to renew this culture, it doesn't start in the temple. It doesn't end in a temple. It starts in your homes. It starts with your marriages so that both of you would speak the language of our God and that you both would be able to talk about who God is and how he works in the world so that your kid's primary place of learning about him would be in the context of your marriage. And he's saying that has to be brought back Look, this is how Solomon led, he was led astray. He was a great man, but even he was led to wickedness because of who he married. So once again, all you single people, all you single people, here's what you need to know that God's design for your singleness is to exalt himself. God's design for your married life in the future is to exalt himself. And for everyone who is married in this room, God has taken claim of your marriage because he designed it so that he might be known primarily within the context of your home. So spiritual drift... It happened with God's work in the temple. It happened over what they were giving and taking and how they made provision for themselves. And it happened over the space that was primary in their home. In all of these areas, it continues to be a problem. And I just want you to know, as outrageous as all of it sounds right after they make a promise, the outrageous sometimes can feel very familiar. For everyone who belongs to Jesus, you know about this spiritual drift. It happens all the time. People do not drift towards holiness. D.A. Carson says it this way. It's going to be on the screen. People do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift towards compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking that we've escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves we've been liberated. Listen, in other words, we have a really, really big appetite for all the wrong things, okay? That's part of what it means to be human. Everybody has that in common. Everyone in this room, you stand on level ground when it comes to what you desire, You desire yourself. You desire your flesh to be gratified. And God wants to replace the things that your heart delights in with himself. He wants to give you the most important and most delightful thing, which is himself. He invites us to take pleasure in him above all things. But it's going to take some things. It's going to take you being able to see what, are, what things are not delightful to him. It's going to be able, God has to open our eyes to see what spiritual drift looks like. And so I have a couple questions. How do you know that you're drifting away? How do you know? I think there, these four areas that he confronts are really good assessments of where we are right now. Spiritual drift looks like not revering God's place in our life. That's what he confronts to to begin with. He says, this guy doesn't belong here. He's an enemy of God. So you guys know that Jesus turned over tables in the temple, right? Like if he came up in your life, what would he be knocking over and saying, this doesn't belong here. So allow yourself to ask the question, what doesn't belong in this God of this life that, I, that is possessed by God? What doesn't belong here? Spiritual drift looks like us harboring God's enemies through our entertainment, through what we see, what we put our mind on, what I said earlier about cultivating and curating the artwork that you let into your brain. We have a responsibility to curate what we take in to make sure that we're not harboring any fugitives that are running from God in rebellion. Second area. Second area of spiritual drift. We drift from God's work. He confronts the officials because God's work has been neglected. Listen, if everyone took the really clear things that God has invited us into, just the clear things, not that, look, most people are like, well, I don't know if I wanna go to Africa. I'm not sure God's calling me to some other place. God has called you to obey him today. And there's specific ways that you can do that by loving your neighbor as yourself. Every person in the room has been commanded with that invitation. He's inviting us to participate in his work. And just as they've forsaken his work, one of the ways that we can put our pulse on spiritual drift is we begin to forsake the things we know that we've been invited into. We begin to forsake them and say, you know what, I don't have time for that. There's other things more important. Everybody's been given the same amount of time, y'all know that. Everybody's budgeting the same number of hours in every single day. So we drift from God's work, we drift from God's provision. One of the ways that we can drift from God is seeing our work as our means for provision. Now, it is literally the means that God provides for you, but it's God who does the providing. How do you see your work? How do you see the vocation that God's called you to to do in the world? Because the way that you view your career says a lot about how you trust God. Part of the curse is that man would look at the ground and he would toil over it. It would look back at us and have thorns and thistles. And, but God invites us to see him as the ultimate provider, as the one who's trustworthy and good, so that when we come to our work, we bring freed hearts. And we can look at it not as our ultimate means of provision, but just the way that God has provided for us today, our daily bread. And instead of seeing God as provider and good, they began to take matters into their own hands and they did things that God wasn't inviting them to do. So have you abandoned God's work? Have you abandoned God's provision for you? And ultimately, have you abandoned the altar of the home? Do you see your primary place of worship is is right there in the midst of your family? Now, I know some of you are single. Some of you have a family still at home. Some have already launched your family into the world. Wherever you're at, God has claimed the home as the primary place that we'd worship him. And that's what they're being confronted with and returning to. He wants our language to reflect him. He wants our interactions in that space to reflect him. He wants his patience and kindness and virtues to be demonstrated first with the people that are closest to us. Now, if you're anything like me, you know that the people closest to you can see the ugliest parts of you, you know? But God wants to put his mercy and grace on display with the people that are close enough to see the power of it. And he's inviting us to participate in that. Second point here, I'm gonna keep moving on, okay? Is spiritual leadership. We got to have a vision of spiritual leadership like the one that Nehemiah provides here. Spiritual leadership, Henry Blackaby said that it was just the work of moving people from their own agendas to God's agenda. I really like that. I also like the idea that, that spiritual leadership looks like guardians of one another's joy. It looks like us saying, hey, I'm going to take responsibility for your future joy. And I'm going to step in and see where you're going to be in five years, in 10 years. And I'm going to play the role that God has asked me to play in moving you from point A to point B. That's what Nehemiah is doing in this. He takes responsibility. And so for some of you are like, I'm not much of a leader. If that's you and you're thinking, I'm not a leader, I have no influence. You do have responsibility, at least for yourself. And here's what I would propose to you. If you begin taking responsibility for yourself, you're gonna find yourself taking responsibilities for others. You're gonna to begin to imagine a role that you might play in the lives of others and their development and where they're going to be. Spiritual leaders are a lot of things like that. But ultimately, Nehemiah is a guardian of their joy. And as a guardian of their joy, he demonstrates a few things. First of all, he has the courage to confront them. Nehemiah showed spiritual leadership in his willingness to step up to officials and nobles and merchants, the business leaders in his day and say, what you're doing, it's wrong. Okay. And he didn't even say it that nicely. He starts throwing their furniture and pulling their hair. He's saying, look, you've got to stop this. Spiritual leadership. We need those kind of people who are willing to say the difficult things to us at the risk of losing our friendships so that they can actually exercise what a real friendship looks like. Faithful friendship looks like wounds sometimes. It looks like faithful wounds where people step up and say, hey, listen, I can see where this path leads and you do not want to go down it. I can see the destruction that you're headed for and I want to be a guardian of your future joy. I want you to delight in the things that will actually satisfy you because the paths that you're on, they're going to destroy you. He has the compassion for them, compassion enough to warn them about their future. He warned them as a guardian of their joy. He said, look, here's where it's going to lead you. God was working for their good and they were working to accomplish it on their own. And he said, this is not going to work out for you. He had the concern for them to correct them. He didn't just point out where they were wrong. He said, look, we're gonna set up officials. We're gonna start doing this the right way. He set up orderly, in an orderly fashion. He said, here's how we're gonna pursue faithfulness in this moment. And it ultimately comes with complete dependence on God. So real spiritual leadership looks like this. Throughout the passage, he's saying, oh God, help me, remember me. Don't forget the things that I've done. It looks like this act of virtue and correction and warning while completely praying to God, God, help me. Remember me in the future. Multiple times throughout the book of Nehemiah, he's just telling a story and he'll just say, oh God, help. He would just bust out in prayer. It looked like a a life of dependence that whatever God was inviting him to do and to say and to act on, God would have to be the one who provided for him. So this place of complete dependence on God leads us to real spiritual leadership where we can have a vision of the potential in someone and a willingness to take on that responsibility of the role that we might play in getting them there. Listen, don't you guys want spiritual leadership like that? That would be contending for you? Not contentious, but contending. And that's the balance that all people in roles of leadership play. The New Testament sets this out as a qualification for an elder in the church. You cannot be contentious. And at the same time, every elder has to contend. So we have to persuade and plead and ask God to work mercifully to reconcile people from where we are to where he's taking us. And that's what Nehemiah is demonstrating throughout this passage. He's over and over pleading with his people, with God's people, to repent and return. And ultimately, that reflects the the love and concern of our chief shepherd, Jesus Christ who in John chapter one, it says that he came full of God's glory and that glory looked like two things, grace and truth. That means that, God is always confronting us and confirming and affirming us in his affection that he looks like grace that's unmerited and he looks like speaking the truth of correction in all of that Jesus was tough and tender and over and over and over we get to see that played out through the gospels that Jesus was both full of grace and truth so in conclusion as we wrap up the book of Nehemiah today Here's what I want you to know, that God is still a God of restoration. He loves, loves, loves to take broken things and broken lives and broken individuals and to pour out his grace so that he might be made known into the, in the world. And he's inviting you and I to participate in what he's doing. He's always saying, hey, I'm at work. He's inviting you to join him as he makes, uh, reconciles all things to his design. And here's two things specifically throughout the book of Nehemiah that are clear in this passage today. The first one is this. God's people are prone to wonder. Don't we know it? Don't we know that reality? I mean, you can look at Peter. You can look at God's people in Nehemiah. You can look at the people being delivered from Egypt and they're there to worship God in the wilderness and suddenly they've, they just threw some gold in the fire and out comes this calf. And there they are worshiping. What happens over and over and over is that God's people, they hear him clearly, they're delivered by him, but our hearts are just prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. So how can you go from rejoicing to wondering? All of you are familiar with it. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And the most clear clear picture of this in the New Testament is the story of Peter. I love Peter because he's a loud mouth and so am I. And I love Peter because he needed God's grace and so do I. And here's how Peter demonstrates this reality. The night before Jesus is, is forsaken, he's, or the night that uh, he was forsaken, he's sitting at the Lord's Supper with the last supper with all his disciples and he says, one of you is going to betray me. One of you is going to betray me. And Peter starts asking, who is it? It's not me, right? And he tells Jesus, look, I will go with you even to death. I, listen, he's full of empty promises. He's like, look, even if I have to lay down my life for you, Jesus, I am going to go with you, whatever you have to suffer, I'm with you, heart and soul, Jesus. The next thing you know, he's cutting off somebody's ear because he wants to protect Jesus. I will cut off an ear for you, Jesus. I will stand between you and your enemies, Jesus, as if Jesus needs to be defended. And Jesus tells him, before the rooster crows, three times you will have betrayed me you will deny me and that story is hauntingly familiar who's for anyone who loves Christ you long to stand by Jesus even unto death you've said no I will do anything for you Jesus and then you hear the rooster crow again you hear it over and over because that's the story of God's people Over and over wondering because the evidence of God's grace is not the absence of wandering, but it's a pattern of returning. That's the evidence of God's grace for everyone who believes. It's not that you wouldn't wander. It's that we constantly have to return to this place where we're in need of God's grace and we agree with Him. Yes, I see that I have fallen. I see that I'm in need of Your mercy. And I have a regular pattern of coming back and saying, Lord, I've done it again. I've wandered away. Because the Holy Spirit, if you're walking with Jesus, he's constantly confronting you with truth and then offering you grace. He's full of both, full of grace, full of truth. And he brings both of them to the table every time you sit down with him. He says, here's the truth about who you are and who I am. And here's the grace that I offer you because you know that you need my mercy. And then the last point is this, God's people need faithful spiritual leadership. The kind of leadership that reflects what happens when Nehemiah where he's prayerful and dependent on God for strength and he's regularly having to get in their face and say, what have you done? Where have you gone? This is not what God wants for you. Who are cooperating with God as agents of restoration, as agents of reconciliation, who are making an appeal to you to be reconciled to God's design, that are correcting and warning us of our sin. They're guardians of our joy. If you do not have people in your life that are guardians of your joy, I want you to know you need that, I need that. Everyone who's in Christ Jesus needs that. We need physical representations of Jesus who was the perfect priest to comfort us in sin and the perfect prophet to speak truth to us when we're wrong. We need those kind of people around us, surrounding us, saying, hey, I can see that this is not gonna lead to your joy. So everyone needs people that are responsible for them and everyone needs to take responsibility for one another. That's the implications of it. We need people who won't just say, Yes, to taking responsibility for themselves, but they'll look around themselves and say, hey, I want to step in your life in a way that's faithful and kind. Look, we don't need machete people for Jesus. We need scalpels that'll say, let me tell you what I see, okay? Some of you, if you're just like eager to go for confrontation, we don't need you, okay? You need to back off and calm down. God wants people who are faithful and kind and compassionate, who see the path that we're going down, who will step in with the scalpel of God's grace and say, here's the truth and here's the correction and here's the path towards joy. So in conclusion today, I wanna read this over us from Hebrews and I make this as a prayer over us too. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So let us, Bill Weather Church, hold fast to our confession. Let us consider, that means think about it, how would we stir up one another towards love and good works? How do we encourage one another all the more as we see the end drawing near? How do we step into encouragement and exhortation and faithfulness? Let's encourage one another as we leave here today, and I want us to pray together to that end. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. I pray that it would continue to minister to us. Where we need to be confronted, I pray that it would. Where we need to be corrected. You, Pray that you'd shine light on the path ahead. And for those who fear condemnation, I pray that your gospel would speak volumes over them in this opportunity to return once again to the throne of grace to receive mercy in our time of need. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.